Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? It, I'm thinking about it, thinking hard, is a great day to be back talking about Bearcat basketball. It is, Hummer. It is. It has been quite some time since we hopped on the mic together to talk Cincinnati Bearcats hoops. In fact, the last episode we dropped was labeled and titled a, an unremarkable regular season released on March 3rd, which means when this drops, which will, you know, technically, I guess it'll probably drop on March 31st. Um, it's an April, thir- April 1st podcast for everybody in your feeds when you wake up in the morning. We're going to have gone about a 30 whole days almost uh, of not talking Bearcat sports, which means we did not talk conference tournament results. We did not talk transfer portal. We did not talk roster upheaval. We did not talk about what this team needs to do to, to sort of, uh, you know, see an improvement in results in West Miller's second season as coach, or even put a bow on the season, right? We did have a conference tournament. We did have a, a victory against East Carolina that ended a five-game losing streak, 74-63 over East Carolina. But then inevitably we lost to Houston, uh, which has just been an inevitable opponent against us. Uh, it, it's very much Mr. Anderson in the subway. Uh, the sound, that sound you hear is the sound of inevitability. And unfortunately, we are not Neo seeing the matrix at this point. We don't have an answer. We have not solved that riddle yet but it does seem appropriate we're going to drop a friday podcast here we're going to get back into a routine we're going to start releasing weekly episodes again there's plenty to talk about with with basketball with football um with with the natty boys baseball team we're going to start getting into the flow of things but for this episode let's just talk about all the things that we missed over the last 30 days and react to the season way too late uh the takes are not fresh these are old washed you know has been takes but we're still gonna drop them how you feeling buddy i'm looking on campom right now looking at where the bearcats finished a dismal 101 ranking i think that's don't quote me on this i believe that's like 16 or so spots above where we started but but the university of cincinnati is better per campom than one team that made the Elite Eight. The St. Peter Peacocks come in at 102. All these Bearcats need is a chance, a dream. (laughs) The way to interpret that, right? Do we interpret that as, like, do we use that as an evidence of underachieving because St. Peter's certainly didn't have as much talent as we did, or did they? And, you know, how how do you spin that? How, how as a fan are we spinning that information or is it completely irrelevant? We don't have to talk about it at all. I just, I just thought it was funny to point that out because the St. Peter's run was awesome. It was incredible. Uh, Watching a team that was so undersized against almost every single opponent and not one opponent being able to, to find success until UNC playing inside basketball against them. It was incredible to watch. Uh, when it comes to the Bearcat season, you know, I, we'll go back to what did you say the title of the last episode was? The an unremarkable regular season. Now, I, I guess we could we could modify that take based on what happened in the tournament, but that's sort of what I want to rehash. I want to put a bow on the season. Certainly not dive into individual games. We're not going to recap the Houston loss thirty days later. That's not going to happen. That's not serving anyone. But we can offer thoughts that we've had offline and, and, you know, off mic uh, simply because of, of hectic schedules and spring breaks and vacations. And, uh, you know, frankly, just the, 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 the first lull in podcast history, it's the first lull we had. We apologize, but we're back. I promise you. I mean, we're, if we go back and say from February 12th and picking the arbitrary day to, to March 11th, about a full month, right? We saw two victories in that, that span. And we saw two losses to Houston, both 
under 20 points. The highlight of Friday, March 11th, was that after the game, our coach was still on the court with his players, was not pouting, angry, doing whatever it is, just, just leaving leaving his, his, his foot soldiers on the court to fend for themselves. You know, the general was out there to take the loss on the chin. Uh, but yeah, it's, this season was, it wasn't fun. Like the beginning was fun. Beating, beating Illinois was the high point of the season, but way back in November, it feels like after that, every kind of win was scraped by or wasn't, enough because you know that some of the opponents we were playing getting absolutely waxed up off off of centos against savior never feels good you know you're, you're coming in with ashland keeping the game close you're coming in with tennessee tech kept the game close most of the game you know we took a, a loss oh god temple twice losing the temple twice like that that will sting my memories for for the next six months as we wait for basketball season to roll back around it's and i don't really know where to start with what went wrong except maybe maybe there's some i think most of the blame should be put on the shoulders of wes miller yeah i don't i don't know how to do this right i don't know if we need to do a, a blame game podcast i will say you know, you mentioned the Ken Palm rating and the fact that I think we finished the year. Did you say we finished the year at 101? Right now we're at 101. I guess that could technically change. I don't expect it to. But we finished 101st. We started the year at 117. So we did move up 16 spots in Ken Palm's ratings based on where we were expected to start. I would say that based on Ken Palm's ratings, I think we were predicted to have a worse record. Um, I know I personally expected better and I expected... I expected a better record. I expected over 20 wins simply because of, you know, not because I thought this was some loaded roster that had, you know, a clear path to playing incredible basketball. No, I thought, I thought that based on what Wes Miller's, you know, coaching MO was that this would come, this team would come together as a very impressive, reliable defensive unit. And that's because a lot of the players on the team had sort of a defensive focus to their game. You know, you've got Adu and Koval as grad transfers, two of the, the greatest, you know, aggregate shot blockers in the history of college basketball. You've got Micah Adams Woods, who's an exceptional, uh, historically a very good defensive wing who is giving people like Kendrick Davis fits in the past. Um, Mike Saunders Jr. Maybe he takes a leap and becomes and puts that speed and quickness to use to become, you know, extremely, uh, pesky and, and kind of a nuisance in the backcourt. David DeJulius, the same thing. Unfortunately, though, those pieces were never really, never congealed in a way that created, you know, an elite, elite defense. They finished overall with an adjusted efficiency, 75th in the country, down the stretch, uh, losing, I think, 10 of their last 14 games. You know, the defense was, was not reliable half to half. You would see a good defensive half followed by, um, you know, an atrocious one where you've got teams like South Florida, Central Florida Temple just scoring at will on the Bearcats again and again and again. And it's that's the thing that I, if I'm going to look back and say what surprised me the most, that's the biggest surprise to me is that, yes, we had a lack of offensive talent. Yes, there was no obvious way to be an elite scoring team game in, game out. But the defense never really came together. And in fact, it regressed as the season went along. And I think that's probably my, the biggest disappointment is that that's not something Wes Miller and the staff was able to really figure out in season one. Yeah. I think you hit on it too. I, I, the other thing I'm seeing is coming into the season, we had high expectations for a few players who I don't really think hit the level that we thought they would, especially when you're, you're talking, I'll, I'll start I'll start with the easy one, Jeremiah Davenport, where I know some people were pointing out, like he actually he actually had a decent three-point uh, shooting percentage. It was 36% on the season. But the, I, the issue I have with that stat is it hides how bad at times his shot selection was. That in reality, I think he should have been shooting closer to 39, maybe even 40% had he actually, you know, 
not gone first is the first shot he gets the ball shoots it up and completely air mails it you know maybe looking for that that second pass that set you know that that second option you know and so i think that we, we came into the season thinking all right we're gonna have jeremiah davenport who potentially could be you know second first team all conference type of player you know that doesn't pan out you have mike saunders jr who was tearing it up at the end of last season we're expecting him to come in potentially be earning fighting for starting minutes getting a lot more playing action being more of a, a contributor on the team well we let's, let's see a yeah, lot of that don't don't fly through him too fast because i do think we should sort of review each player's individual performances and there's some we want to talk about more because they have a future with the bearcats there's some who are are choosing to, to play elsewhere going forward. But, um, you know, Davenport is where we should start because Davenport was the most notable player returning to this roster. Um, look, it's, it's, it's less than 12 months ago when this guy announced and confirmed that he was all in, you know, I'm coming back to Cincinnati. I'm not wavering. I believe in this program. I believe in the city. And he was the most popular guy in, in this, in the world of Cincinnati Bearcats outside of Luke Fickle. He was, insanely popular his q rating was skyrocketing at that point given what we were seeing with with brandon getting fired given what we were seeing with the portal um the guy who who decided to stay and decided to believe and was also the one receiving postseason accolades um it's what got it kind of reinvigorated the fan base in a, in a certain way unfortunately he just he just had a, a a poor season i don't think there's any way to slice it offensively Yes, he is the best shooting option on the team. He's six seven. He can get a shot off almost at any time. But what we saw from his sophomore to junior year is a guy who was carrying too much of a burden on his shoulders. And it, in some ways, that's simply unfair to him that we even expected him to be a go-to scorer. That's not in his bag. That's not in his wheelhouse. That's not something he can do. And it's never him being a, a go-to scorer does not pair up with winning, right? He can be your go-to scorer. He can be your lead option, but it's not going to go hand in hand with making the NCAA tournament and being a consistent winning team. And the problem I thought Jeremiah with Jeremiah offensively was what you said, the, the shot selection, the fact that the ball was continuously stopping with him. There was too much settling. Um, some of that I would chalk up to Wes Miller, just simply not having enough accountability with Jeremiah on what is a good shot and how do we play a flow offense, but still make, you know, good decisions and not just have the, the green light to the extent of where we're, we're being a detriment to the flow of the offense. Cause there were times last year where bench players would come in. Jeremiah would be on the bench. The defense obviously went up a level and the offense would actually flow a little bit better and have better ball movement based on the fact that it wasn't stopping um, every single time it hit, not just Jeremiah Davenport's hands, but well, let me, also let me ask you, let, let me ask you this question. When you're, when you're talking about Jeremiah Davenport coming in and being, you know, having that burden on his shoulders, is that a, I'm wondering if you think that is a burden that he placed on his own shoulders, or is that a burden that was placed on him by the coaching staff as like a design of saying, Hey, you got the green light, shoot it. If you're open, shoot it. If you think you're open, like what, what's your opinion right there? I, I think more blame personally falls on the coaching staff. Like I think Jeremiah has taken a ton of heat and I've been frustrated. Like it was hard to even tweet or talk about Jeremiah at times last year without being negative. And so you just, you know, if you, if you ain't got something nice to say, don't say nothing. Um, he, he struggled. Like it was just by the end of the year, he was completely out of sorts when it came to, what his role should have been on the court. And the reason I put more of it on the coaching staff is sooner earlier in the season, Wes Miller and the, and the staff has to find a way to get through to him to, to help him better discern when is the opportunity to attack? How do we get you in the post a little bit more? Because you are big down there. The guys matching up with you are generally smaller than you. Um, and he does some pretty good work there in the post. He can't beat people off the dribble. He doesn't have a good handle and he's not quick, but he is big. And he, and he did do some very good things in the post. He just didn't do it very frequently. Um, and, and I think, so my bigger frustration is that there didn't seem to be a priority from the coaching staff to either get through to Jeremiah, to move the ball a bit quicker, to not look for a jump shot every single time the ball hits your hands, 
and to find a way to be a little bit more discerning in, in where the shot is. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with Wes Miller year one, didn't have an offense that was able to manufacture. Like he couldn't manufacture offense with his own offensive sets. Like Wes Miller wasn't creating or manufacturing offense with beautiful sets or motion. And, and sure, I know there's plenty of people who are going to push back and say the talent's not there. That's fine. I get it. The talent is not elite. There's a lot of missed shots on this team. Look, I, There's a lot of I'll, bad shooters. I'll push back on the talent. I'll push back on anybody who wants to say the talent. And we've already talked about the Peacocks. If anybody watched any of those games, those guys moved the ball so much and, and just ran an offense and executed when on the games that they pulled those upsets. I just think that literally they out-executed a lot of teams. They did that with talent, though, That's that is probably equal or... It, be real like if you're playing in the, if you're playing in november st pete's st peter's is going into purdue are you really putting your money on a november game of st pete's versus purdue i'm not i'm putting my money on purdue and the big guys and i'm putting my money on the talent like this, we have talent there is some talent on this team this team isn't completely devoid of it that they shouldn't be able to execute offensive sets to get good wide open looks and not settle for the first shot two seconds into a shot clock yeah, not to the, the this. There's not a dearth of talent to the extent where you saw comparisons to Mick Cronin's first team with the Bearcats. Exactly. This was this wasn't that, but it, there is there is a defense to say Wes Miller wasn't the one smoking layups night in night out. Wes Miller wasn't the one. He's not the one choosing when or when when not to shoot. Like he is not making the decisions for the players on the court. I'm just simply tracing it back to was there enough of a a level of accountability for guys making those mistakes. And it's the tale as old as time where for years we've had Mick Cronin and Bob Huggins, and we've always wondered, Hey, can we be a little more lenient on our young players getting the opportunity to make the occasional mistake and playing through a mistake and having a longer leash? Because that's something we always dealt with. Right. And I, I know I've personally been on record saying I'd love to see a little bit more of a, a trust in players, free flow offense, allowing players to improvise and make mistakes and learn from them. The problem this year is that we didn't see any learning from the mistakes. We saw it was banging our head and slamming it against, you know, a steel frame beam again and again and again. And so at what point as a coach, is it on you to say, no, 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 we're going to completely change this up. I'm going to, redistribute minutes based on who's executing and who's making the best decisions on the court or who's bringing defense on a night to night basis. Cause if there's, I can, I, we can allow the mistakes offensively from Jeremiah Davenport, the effort and the execution defensively was atrocious all year long. So I've, I've heard the theory, the theory thrown out there and I don't know where it was from, or if this was just from you and I talking or, or whatever, that a lot of this extra long leash that Wes Miller was providing to players was, a symptom, a result of the lack of leash, the lack of trust that the players had in the previous coaching staff, i.e. Brannon. And so that the, the at leash was extra long. I guess even if that's the case, even if that is true, that that's what happened, I'm wondering where do you draw the line when you see Jeremiah Davenport pull up, you know, from 35 feet, and pull and, and and pull the and pull the three of the jumper and completely airball it. And you know, as soon as he gets the ball back, you're not calling a timeout and pulling him off the court and saying, Hey, what what why did you take that shot? I'm not mad at you because I want you to take open shots, but why'd you take that shot? You know, I don't think we saw that. I don't think we saw one time where there was just a frustration where it just boiled over and was like, All right, guys, we need to we need to take smarter shots. And I think we saw at some games. I think we saw the players almost policing themselves because I saw a little bit of avoiding giving the ball to Jeremiah at times. I saw on the court a running of the offense at times where it looked like Micah Adams Woods and David the Julius were kind of hesitant to give Jeremiah Davenport the ball and they went and, and maybe drove into a, a crowded lane instead. There might be. There may be. I mean, that's something that's hard to sort of like speculate on. And it could be us. It could be confirmation bias based on what you want to <laughs> probably what's happening. That's probably what it really is. <laughs> it could be. It's, it's probably more likely that it is confirmation bias. 
I also think that we're probably making a mistake even harping on the offense as much as we do because going into the year, again, this is not something, this is not a roster that we looked at and said, this is going to be an elite offensive team. We knew there were question marks on how do we get our points when we've got, you know, one proven shooter on the team in, in Jeremiah Davenport. We've got a should be good shooter in Mason Madsen, but really never, it never came to fruition through, through two seasons. We, we have Micah Adams Woods, who as a freshman was a very, very reliable corner three-point shooter and it's regressed every season. And this season just went off, off the rails and it was hard to watch toward the end of the year, you know, missing layups, not hitting outside shots. Um, it was tough to watch. Confidence was clearly leaking from his, his soul at that point. He had no confidence on the court offensively. We knew there were question marks there. What's more disappointing is that given that we're playing in a very weak American athletic conference that only saw Houston and Memphis make the NCAA tournament, um, our defense, if we had brought high-level defense to the game night in, night out, we are winning 21 games. Like You can't tell me we're not pulling another one off against Temple, against South Florida. Um, like these are, these are layup games, Tulsa. Like that's another example of just a very bad team that, that we had no business losing to, but we did because we gave up 83 points. And that's the thing that I think is a little more inexplicable. If we're going to diagnose it, we see, to me, we saw a situation where we have Abdullah do who was very good interior, uh, on the interior in terms of contesting shots at the rim guys were hitting layups over him, but he was solid overall Caval, same deal, but we, we just lack size. John Newman, the third who, who was in and out at times with injuries, you know, banged up throughout the year. That was about the only guy we had who had size on the wing to guard guys. Jeremiah Davenport, very slow foot can't defend it all. And honestly, doesn't look like he cares to defend half the time. I just don't even think he he's trying on that end of the court. Most of the time, um, isn't that the, isn't that the other isn't that the other thing though that's like a con very contrasting from like last year to this year not saying that last year jeremiah was this like elite defensive player but we did a better job he came, hiding in, it. he came in with energy and he came in like i'm gonna go and sprint down the court and go toe to toe with precious right or whatever the, uh, i can't think of the precious the, uh, the memphis guy Precious Achua, go in and then chest bump up to the guy with some energy. And this year, he just didn't seem to bring that. That was John Newman was the guy this year who came in, whether starting or off the bench, and just had energy. Every single play, he brought the energy that, honestly, I think the the rest of the team seemed at times to be. I'm not I'm not questioning their their drive or anything, but I'm saying like he brought energy. That's kind of what you want to see from an entire roster. If you're going to play basketball with the idea that you're going to be the best defenders in the league, the the best defensive team, every single player has to have that John Newman type chip on their shoulder and that you're going to die for every loose ball that you're going to be running out of bounds to, 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 to try to save that, that basketball that you're going to get on the deck every single time you have to. And I feel like that's what this team was missing was just a little bit of extra, you know, every player having that little bit of that John Newman edge to him. John Newman was easily one of the biggest bright spots for the season. Energy, athleticism, what he could bring to the table defensively. Those were all positives. And you could see if you get a few more dudes like John Newman, the third, if you have a few Jeez. more of those dudes, we are, we're more competitive night in, night out. We're, we're playing a style of basketball that, yes, is probably ugly. It's probably going to include a lot of clanking, but it's going to include tenacious defense. It's going to include all-in effort night in, night out. What Wes Miller can't coach around, and maybe what I didn't see coming and should have, you know, in hindsight, the learning lesson here is, or the lesson learned is when your backcourt is always going to be a combination of six-foot-nothing David DeJulius Six foot two, Micah Adams Woods, six foot nothing, maybe Mike Saunders Jr. Like, what do you, how, how are you defending? Because we saw Temple, like, Temple was one of the obvious instances where they don't have a big front court, but they have big backcourts. Their, their guards were six five, six four, six six. And they saw our guys on them. It's like, all right, 
go straight to the post. Take this little man. What, what does uh, Shaq say? Barbecue chicken every single time down the court. And so how do you coach around size? And so going into next season, if we were going to look into and start kind of shifting the conversation to how do we see this team getting better next year? What are the needs? Who's leaving? I'll get into that. Obviously, the first thing for me is figuring out a way to create a rotation that does naturally have a bit more size. I think we already have some solutions that are coming in in Daniel Skillings and Josh Reed, two wing players, freshmen. We don't know exactly what to expect, but both of them are, are I think, six five, six seven, long wingspans, and freshmen have the ability of contributing earlier than they ever have before. Um, even guys who are not necessarily top 10, top 20 recruits, these guys can come in and make an immediate difference. And if David DeJulius is now playing next to, you know, a Daniel Skillings at six, seven and a John, a John Newman, the third at six, five. Okay. You've only got one guy to pick on now in the post and you've got to find a big guard to do it. And we have more lankier, rangier wings to help with that. That to me is an, an easy roster tweak that could fix some defensive problems next year. Well, I think that the biggest thing that we're going to have to have is you, you mentioned it, who's playing next to David Julius. And I'm going to, I am going to steal your, I'm going to steal your, uh, your off the air, you know, uh, what do you would call it? Observation here that if you're going through our rostering, you're saying who's a number one, right? Who's a number one score on almost any other team. Like our number one this year, was David the Julius, right? He, he's the, he was the leader in points per game, but really he's a, he's a two, maybe even a three, uh, a third option, I think is what, is what we've kind of gone through. And so this team needs scoring options. They need guys who can create just like Julius is good at creating his own shot. I think he gets some decent penetration has a good handle, uh, but we need guys who are going to be able to create for others and being able to score ball. We need a number one. We need a stud. Yeah, I think that there was the roster construction last year in many ways was fatally flawed. And so let's let's transition a little bit to where we're heading next year. And so allow me a second here to break it down on where we stand roster wise. We had two players whose eligibility has expired. And I'm going to phrase it that way because you've got a lot of players here who have extra COVID years available to them. And, you know, Koval and Adu, two guys who were graduate transfers, they don't have another year. They've they've used their extra year. They are moving on from the program. So immediately there, the two guys we're losing are, are two of your stalwarts in the front court. Flawed players, not perfect players by any means, but, but certainly size and certainly did offer a level of rim protection. In addition to their departure, we are seeing Mason Madsen enter the transfer portal, Rob Banks enter the transfer portal, um, Mike Saunders Jr. enter the transfer portal, and A.J. McGinnis enter the transfer portal. Three out of four of those guys. And by the way, when I was talking about small guards, Mason Madsen was another one, 6'2". Like there was just no size in the backcourt whatsoever. So right there, we see three of those guys. Uh, Rob Banks didn't play any minutes last year. It was a walk-on when he first came to Cincinnati. Um, wishing him well. I know you're one of his biggest fans. Loved having the, the English presence uh, in the program. But, but all in all, like you're, you're talking Madsen and Saunders in terms of impactful departures and they are two smaller guards so naturally that is going to give you a chance to sort of reframe how things go that leaves us that leaves us with david de julius who returns for one last year john newman one year returning uh jeremiah davenport has two years left if he uses a covid year micah adams woods has two years left if he uses a covid year odio guama two years if he uses that covid year hensley three years Lockin, four years Skillings in as a freshman with four years of eligibility, six, seven wing can knock, knock it down from the outside. Had one of the best dunks of the year that we saw shared online went viral. Uh, Josh Reed, a physical. You just, missed his, you just missed his team. His team won, I believe uh, Dan Skillings is the, My the apologies. Pennsylvania state champions. Uh, and state did he champs. take the MV and he took the, I think he took the MVP uh, award it. home. I believe it. And, um, and you know who it reminds so, me of the last time that happened? Tari Eason. Oh, <laughs> if you want to go ahead and get some goosebumps to the people back home. Tari Eason is the last time you saw a guy lead his team to a state title like that. Come to Cincinnati with a lot of buzz. He's easily the guy that you probably should be licking your chops to see what he can do in the lineup. Because if he can contribute, that's a, that would unlock a lot of interesting 
you know, options for Wes Miller. But we got Josh Reed, 6'5", physical, physical guard slash forward. It's kind of hard to, you know, figure out exactly what he will be, but he's talented. He's got a great passing ability, can score, can rebound. Um, interesting player. Sage Tolentino, uh, seven-footer. You can't teach size, Summer. He's going to have four years of eligibility. This is going to be a project. I just, just telling you now, that's not going to be a guy you expected to contribute year one. So that leaves us with three open roster spots. How, how tall is he? He's seven feet tall. That's what it? Can, what can't you teach? Size. You oh. can't teach size, Summer. You know, I was kind of hoping, you know, seven, six. I was hoping there was like something after that. So like, well, yeah, well, he can contribute. He just stands there like Taco with his hands up. <laughs> You're the biggest Taco hater. If he turned into Taco Fall, that is a massive win for Cincinnati. A massive win. If he turned All I'm in, saying into is anything- you hit it. You hit it right. You can't teach size. And Taco Fall is really good at being really big. <laughs> right. But there are other case studies of big guys who have come through Cincinnati that haven't become Taco Fall. So. We will see. Um, before we get into the three open spots, I want to talk with you about um, uh, down the line here. I want to talk with you about those spots, what you would like to see come in through the transfer portal. Um, but before we do that, we sort of get to see how the roster is being reconstructed here on the fly. Wes Miller made comments in his final presser that were very transparent about what he was trying to do. He was trying to be very honest with every single player on this team about their game, this program, where things are heading, where he's taking the program and how they fit into that future. And from there, his, his goal there is to allow everybody to make the most educated decision possible about what they're going to do with their future. Wes Miller has said, based on personality, what they brought energy-wise, effort-wise, he was willing to take back every single player on this team. But based on those conversations, we saw Mason Madsen leave, Mike Saunders Jr. leave, A.J. McGinnis leave, and Rob Banks leave. I think Mike Saunders Jr., to me, was the most interesting departure and I think is the one that has the most room for debate about was this the best option for us? Like, if we were going to... If you're, if you're rooting for a roster revamp, is he the guy we wanted to see enter the transfer portal? Where's, where's your head at with that? I mean, once again, my bias is coming in here because I was a, a huge Mike Saunders Jr. fan, especially you know, Ice Mike's freshman year. You know, I loved how electric he could be coming off the bench. Loved loved what he brought in terms of energy, speed. You know, one of the fastest players we've we've seen. And I get the sentiment that the upside, like let's let's be real, who we're really comparing him to, who was fighting for, and honestly, who we probably probably should have had more minutes down the stretch then, which is Micah Adams Woods. And, you know, I guess the question we're, we're debating here is, all right, we have a six-foot guard in Mike Saunders Jr. You have a six-foot guard in David DeJulius. You know, does it really matter if it was him or Micah Adams-Woods when we know that regardless of whether one of those two are still in the roster, we need a number one stud? We probably need, you know what I mean? And we want more size at that, at that position to begin with. So I, I'm, 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 I'm more sad about him just departing over say Mike Adams would because of the upside, but in the grand scheme of things, I actually don't think it's going to be as big of a detriment to us because we're going to have, was that four, three open, three open spots for potentially for transfers. Um, and I'm, or four and imagine we're going to have to do some three. combination. We have three so spots right do, now. Imagine we're going to have to do some sort of combination with a, some grad, a grad transfer to make sure we have scholarship scholars open in the future. Yeah, and maybe get someone in there who, who maybe has a couple years left, a la David DeJulius type type of transfer. Um, but the transfer portal is so rich, once again. It, there's 900 and something players in it again. And I'm confident that we're going to be able to get someone that I think is going is going to fit what, what we need in terms of that size. And I don't think Mike Saunders Jr.'s speed at times really helped us because this team, I, I don't know, like we wanted long drawn out plays at times but we we kept getting into these short short shot clocks like we had way more possessions than other teams yet we weren't even putting up points because of it i think the mike saunders jr conversation it's i am i'm a little bit if i'm we're, we're kind of nitpicking on the edges here i am fully aware that nobody on this roster was necessarily indispensable 
nobody was playing at a level that said we we just can't. It, nobody was Tari Eason, right? Like nobody was a program changing type player that said um, if we lose him, that's you know that's like a death nail. I think there's some freshmen coming in where that would be a little bit more of the case. I do think that there's more- two players on this roster that if if you were telling me they were transferring, I would be concerned about the future, say two three years from now. And those two would be Victor Locken and Jared Hensley from, from an upside perspective. If you, so going into the offseason before anybody entered the portal, if you were talking, if you were making a power rankings and said, who are the three most important players on this roster that you want to see stay with Cincinnati? Nobody's entered yet. Who are those three players? Jeremiah Davenport, as, as frustrating as he can be, he's one of the best, he's one of the best shooters on the team. And it, the, the fix, the downside that we saw this year, I don't see that. It shouldn't be that hard to, to, to get an instant, maybe shorten the leash to get better shot selection. And I think Jared Hensley, the way he played and the energy he was bringing towards the end of the year and Victor Locke, I think the upside with those guys is there. I, th- I think the, I think Victor Locke has the ability once he's a little he matures a little bit, gets a little more meat on the bone. I think he's going to be dangerous down low. I think he has a good handle down there. I think he can post up real well. And I think he has a decent shot down there. I think he can be a menace down low. And you know, so I, I think those are the three players that if they were to tell me they're entering the transfer portal, I'd be like, okay, what's going on inside? Not about, not inside about what's locker. going on. I'm talking building a, a roster, like having a competitive team next year in the American Athletic, but then year one in the Big 12. What gives us the best chance? Here's, here's my concern. I would have protected... I would have said Mike Saunders Jr. is my number one priority on this team, given age, given, given potential. I'm, there's some there's some naysayers. To me, a young point guard like that who's 19 years old, that type of speed, uh, a shot that has improved. He did shoot 35% from three last year. That's not nothing um, compared to 26% for Mike Adams-Woods. He was my number one. Victor Lockins, my number two. Jared Henze was my number three. But you can tell. All like, right, we it, weren't that far off. You gave me the death look of like, you're crazy, fool. <laughs> I mean, I, I still think you're crazy, but well, no, um, we had two of the same players on there, Jarrett Hensling and Victor Locken, as as two two of the top three guys we're protecting. But the I'm, only one we're disagreeing on is the Jeremiah Davenport and Mike Saunders. And I get your point to, you know, you didn't throw in the caveat of who we want to be ready for Big Twelve play if you're looking three, four years down the road, you know, from from now. But I also think with Mike Saunders Jr., you just mentioned two guys that are coming in, but that the upside is is equally incredible for two, three years down the road that we want to protect. Here's where I struggle with everything. I'm going to try and explain it because I feel like I'm, I'm being a vague and I'm beating around the bush. I look at it yes. like this. Wes Miller down the stretch um, all year. He basically, I think he said it on public record that he makes his rotation early in the year. And that is essentially his rotation. He does not tweak rotations in a dramatic way, game to game, because he has made his assessment And these are the guys I'm riding with. And so all year, no matter what we saw on the court, Micah Adams-Woods was going to be getting his close to 30 minutes a game. David DeJulius, the same thing. Davenport, same thing. Newman, the same thing. All those guys um, were getting their consistent minutes. And I feel like the obvious layup that Wes Miller had was to start, as as losing started happening at the end of the year, as Micah Adams-Woods struggled to make shots and struggled to make plays, and, and did it offer enough of a defensive improvement on Mike Saunders Jr. to justify how much more he was playing? I would have loved to see Wes Miller change those two guys' roles as a way of even more clearly messaging that going forward, Mike Saunders Jr. is going to be much more heavily involved than Mike Adams-Woods based on what we're seeing on the court. I do think he was outplaying him, and you're talking about a difference in age of like three years. There's much more upside with Mike Saunders Jr. in the future. Um, the challenge and, and I, and the reason I can understand why Wes Miller was probably torn here is that David DeJulius was probably coming back and he probably knew that. And you have David DeJulius six foot, nothing and Mike Saunders jr, six foot, nothing. And this is the, the interesting wrinkle that COVID has had on roster building is that yes, David DeJulius was a very important player for us. And yes, we saw major improvements scoring the ball. He did shoot better last year. Um, he shot better, and his shooting splits were 40% from the field and 29% from three. You know what I mean? It was a low bar. 
but we did see improvement. I would have loved to see an outcome where we kept Mike Saunders Jr. And we saw David DeJulius not return for that extra year. And we saw Mike, Micah Adams Woods enter the portal instead, because I think what that would have allowed to do is it gives West Miller four roster spots now, four open scholarship spots, some more rebuilding. Mike Saunders is sort of penciled in at that point guard position. With four open spots, you could even get another point guard at that, at that spot, probably one with more size, ideally. And you're naturally going to now build a rotation that probably includes two additional bigs from the portal or elsewhere, um, as well as another big guard to put next to your small point guard. But as it stands now, I feel like we're kind of hamstrung into another situation where if they view David DeJulius as our two guard, we are going into next year with the same situation of having a potentially very small backcourt. Now that's if David DeJulius stays as our two and that's, you know, there's a chance that skillings goes to two DeJulius goes to one. There are ways this can play out that I'm wrong. I just think that I would have, I, that other alternate reality is something I would have preferred. I mean, at the same time, basically what you're saying is we're at a, where we seem to be at and hopefully we're wrong is a little bit of a roster flushing where you're, you're, you're basically, you're, you're waiting for the natural turnover of the roster for players to naturally, you know, leave the program because they're, they're aging out, you're transferring out and you're getting the guys in place that, that you want to bring in that are your first choices. I'm not going to, I'm going to say that I'm not going to sugarcoat it anymore because we've talked about this and I, I truly believe it. A lot of these players, you know, they're here because he had to make a quick decision when building this roster in the first place. And these were guys that were transferring to UNC Greensboro. They weren't already transferring into a program. And I'm, I'm putting Cincinnati on his pedestal because this is where we belong. A program like Cincinnati. Right. There's different levels when you transfer. Like if you're like Mike Saunders Jr., the rumor was of him going to follow Travis Steele to Miami. Good. Go. It's it's the Mac. That's right. Like that's I happening. know, but I'm I'm just using it as an example. Like that's that that's like you're transferring to a lower division where these guys, some of them got bumped up to a higher division simply because you needed to build a roster and you had to do it in April. Like that's when he got the job was April 15th. Right. I think it was, or was it Mar something like that? Like we're still two weeks away from when he, when his one year anniversary. So my point is a lot of these players weren't or aren't necessarily Cincinnati caliber recruits. So now that we're in here, we've got, we're getting our first recruiting class with two guys that appear at least two to be the studs one to be a potential wild card with the project who knows what's going to come there but now you get a full year to recruit actual transfers to us to recruit to the university of cincinnati and it's not just a, an emergency you have to and look mason madsen love the guy his personality uh, what he brought his energy his love of the university what, yeah all love of the university love. all yeah. these things but but at the end of the day I don't really think when we brought him in, we talked about, I think this was the very first podcast we did and we sounded like idiots. We had Gabe Mason or Gabe, <laughs> Gabe Madsen was, was recruited. And we heard that also Mason Madsen and we pondered, we, we hypothesized that Mason was only brought along in order to secure, to secure the recruitment of Gabe. Right. And wrong or right. There actually seems to maybe be a little bit of, of truth to that that Mason didn't really, he didn't thrive at this level. He didn't. So when he transfers, do I think Mason's going to go in and transfer to a, to a Duke? Is he going to go and transfer to a Houston? Is he going to go and transfer to, no, I think he's going to end up going down to a, a you know, like a Sun Belt conference, a Southern, a Mac. He's going to end up going to a lower level where he could probably, he'll probably thrive better in, in that league. And so that's my whole point with this roster construction is we do have a lot of guys that were brought there last minute where this year with the portal, I think we're going to be able to get a higher, higher caliber of transfer. So let's talk about the transfer portal in general. You made some really good points there. Um, I think if anything, we're learning that if hopefully talking through this, people realize this isn't an easy rebuild job by Wes Miller. It's not easy because of the state of the roster when he took over. And it's not easy because of the nature of college basketball now. Like he said, when he took this job, 
you have to recruit guys to come here in the first place and you have to recruit guys to stay here. And some guys, I'm, like these honest conversations, it's as clear as day. You're, you are telling guys that there may not be a role for you in the future. And so you're allowing them to make educated decisions about where they could potentially get more time in the future. Even like saying my hypothesis out loud about maybe what a more advantageous outcome would be for the university basketball program would be. I do realize that David DeJulius coming back does mean that there's not a lot of room for like that backcourt is too small. You can't defend with Mike Saunders Jr. and David DeJulius as your backcourt. You just simply can't do it. And they're not good enough offensively to make up for it. But here's what the transfer portal has done for the Cincinnati Bearcats over the last three years. Let's just look at the record. And I know that includes, it includes some Wes Miller. It includes some John Brandon. We don't need to judge them the same. I'm just telling you like, this is the reality of what the transfer portal gives and, and, and provides a program. It's not always a guarantee of a surefire dude. So we've got Chris Vogt came in from Northern Kentucky. We've got... Uh, Chris Vogt almost <laughs> lost me money. We've got Javen Cumberland <laughs> came in from Oakland. We've got um, Chris McNeil. So in terms of hits, hit ratios... Javen Javen Cumberland's a hit. Javen Cumberland was also cousins with Jaron. That didn't hurt. Uh, Chris McNeil was a miss. That had to have a little bit of effect, you would think, right? Yeah, like slightly. Like, like Jaron Jaron's picking up the phone and be like, "Yo, cuz, you coming to play with me?" Like that's that's happened, right? I do think that Javen had a very good relationship with John Brandon too, though. And then Chris okay. Vote. I'll be here's upset alert. Chris Vote was a hit. He was just used too much. Like he he should have been used in a much lesser capacity, like he was at Wisconsin, than he was used here. And so that's more on the coach than it is the player. I'm actually going to say two out of three we hit on in the portal, and that's controversial. I know, especially coming from me. That next year, John Brandon's second year, the portal brings us David DeJulius. That's a hit. So now we're what three out of four. It brings us. Uh, Rapalus Ivanowskis, that's a miss. That's a that's a that's a quit. <laughs> that's a, that's a quit. That's a three out of five. So those are the two guys I'm seeing here for the portal that next year, and then this most current season, Wes Miller's first year, our portal our portal involved Abdullah Du. That's a hit, I suppose. Like it's a half hit. Uh, Hayden Koval, mostly. Uh, it's a miss. You can't, I got to be honest. It's a miss. Um, and then also John Newman, the third hit. And there was another one. I think Jared Hensley, Odie, Odie Oguama, Odie uh, Oguama, TBD, Jared Hensley, TBD, AJ McGinnis miss. You know, I'm actually, I, I know it's still, t it is TBD on Jared Hensley. He is the one that I think next year we're going to be able to pull up the, uh, the approved stamp. I think, I think that's a guy that's going to be a hit at least in whatever role. I'm not saying he's going to come out and be like a stud, but in his role, whatever he's going to play, I think that'll be I think that'll be a hit. But I get what you're saying. It's trending. This isn't, it is trending more of a hit trending than, hit. than it was early in the year. It's hard though. This is hard, right? It's it's not guaranteed that you go to the portal and get and get studs. The the key there too though is when John Brannon was recruiting that first year too, he had something to easily sell. He had the returning conference player of the year already on a roster. He had a he had Trey Scott. He had uh, he had Keith Williams. He had Mamadou Diara. He had a core of studs left over from Cronin the Cronin Cronin era. That that those four right there could have won could have won you a league championship. Those four were 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 good players that played well together and fit well together in the way they that style of basketball. Yes, and recruiting like senior level grad transfers made a lot of sense for that team because yes. of the infrastructure that was there for this team. I guess it's coming, it's coming into to, to view here for me. I was hoping for a harder reset with a younger team to be basically say like, yeah, it's going to be a young team, a team that still is probably going to struggle and scrap and claw for victories. And we're probably not going to make the tournament, but we're going to have something to build on. We're going to see the, the potential and future of Daniel Skillings and Josh Reed and Mike Saunders Jr. and Victor Locke and, and Odio Guama, guys who have 
multiple years left with the Bearcats. Instead, next season is featuring DeJulius and Newman with one year left, Davenport and Woods, who are seniors, like could theoretically be done after next year. And so that, that, that year after, if those guys don't use a COVID year, your roster is looking at Odio Guama, Hensley, Locken, Skillings, Reed, Tolentino, and whoever we fill in these three roster spots with for your first year in the Big 12. Now, if we hit on Reed and Skillings, it's a whole nother ball. That's a whole nother conversation, though, that that actually could sound like a pretty nasty core with some mix of experience and in and skills and skillings. But now yeah, we also it, live, we live in a, in a, in a brave new world where teams that are kind of middling without NCAA tournament success and not a lot of wins players who are very talented can, can take their talents to another program with ease without having to sit out a year. Like you're, you're operating in a very thin margin is kind of what I'm saying. I feel, it feels like, it feels like, everything is very tight right now. Like there's, there's not a lot of, I, I get, I get the tight feeling. I get it. But that's the other thing here. We don't know what the class of 23 looks like. Right. We don't, we don't know what else has been recruited for the future that are, that are being recruited Bearcats first. And we, so and we, we do see we some don't exciting know prospects like. on the docket, right? Like if, right. If Collier uh, comes, it's a game changer. I get it. Like that's, that'd be huge. <laughs> Trey green looks, you know, interesting. He's got, he's a, a very nice shooter. Like there are options out there. I'm just, we're in a very, it's a state of flux, you know, like it's, I don't think it's interesting. Getting... Actually. I think we're, we're, we had, we got this first, you know, choppy kind of just gritty, you know, ugly first season out of the way. We're going to see what coach Miller is really made of over the next, you know, couple seasons. Because next season, I don't think it's going to be, you know, it's not, I don't think that this is just going to flip and switch and all of a sudden we're going to see the world's most, you know, the beautiful game of basketball. I still think this is going to be a team that's going to need to grind out victories. And if anything, they're going to have to step up and be better, even better defensively, uh, which at times, you know, defense didn't really look that They have to be better defensively. It wasn't very good. We cannot call that last year's team a great defensive team. I know. Metrics reflected now. Yeah. If, it feels like weird that that's what like, they hung their hats on. Like, oh, great. But they weren't no, good at it. Not. Right. Our, we hang our hat on defense, except we don't do it well. Um, <laughs> this is a good, bad thing, defensive team. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention here on our kind of on our on our welcome back pod that, that we'll see how it's received. Um, we have three open roster spots and we I kind of went through the roster construction previously. Given where we're at, I'm curious what you are hoping to see those three roster spots filled by, whether it be. If it's a big man, what kind of big man? If it's a guard, are you looking for a point guard, a scoring guard? What What is your ideal outcome for those three roster spots? I want a guy. I want a number one scoring option. That's my first go-to. I want a guy who's going to come in and almost like Sean Kilpatrick-esque, be the guy that you know you need to score. This is the guy you're no doubt in your mind. This is your number one scoring guy. You're giving him the ball. And if he can't do it, well, he's capable of creating a shot. That's going to leave someone else open because he's so dangerous that that's the guy I want to see. And I want to see him have a little bit of size. I want to be at least six, three, six, five playing next to David DeJulius. I want David DeJulius to be able to score 20 points, but I want him to be able to do it as a number two. I want to see, I don't want him to be a primary scoring option. I want him to truly want, be. I want playmaker to Julius. Actually, I I think yes. that I think that we're in a tough spot if we're going to put a point guard next to DeJulius. Let's put DeJulius at that point guard role. He's more of a scorer. We get it, but we know he can facilitate a combo a combo tight guard with size six four six five athletic, and if he can light it up a little bit, even better. I, I do think that's a good need. That to me is the only guard or wing need we have. I think that otherwise, after that, I want to bet on Reed and I want to bet on Skillings. And to me, those last two spots, we have to use it on big men. Right now, it's Oguama now, do you want, and it's Lockin. How do men, you do? You want do you want center like Koval big men, or do you want? I for me, from a more big man, I want size, but I want athleticism. 
like yes. scoring. I want almost scoring to be kind of like second. Like a like a Bubba defense. Like a Bubba. Yeah, I want I want defense. But no, I mean honestly, you I would think take I'm a Mamadou. I, I, I would honestly kind of like a Mamadou type player, guy who a, a who better Mamadou. Frisky, I, I think that frisky you get gonna, out there play good defense. We're not going to get some unicorn at the at the big man spot. I don't think, right? You're not going to get this ideal. Danny Fortson can grab you 12 rebounds, score 25, throw it into him. He's getting you buckets. I don't envision us getting that guy. If we did, that's amazing. I I'm like you. I think we need an, two big an NBA. Men. Great. We're, we're not going to get a future NBA. Great. Just walking on. <laughs> I'd love two athletic. I'd love two big men. Now, if, if they're two different profiles, that's fine. I think it would be interesting to have, you know, a guy who's six ten or so six ten plus and does have some offset offensive ability where you can throw it into him. They can do a little post up. Maybe not as good defensively, but still sizable. Can get their hands up and pr- protect the rim and rebound a little bit. That that is a perfect world scenario. The other big, just give me a dude who's athletic, long, can switch, and can test shots at the rim, and then throw throw some hands on him. Basically, Odie Oguama without the foul proneness. Because if Odie if Odie could be a little more disciplined, and put together longer stretches of the best version of Odie Oguama, you've got something there. He's a, he's a, he's so, he's so relentless on the glass. You love it. Victor Lockett, if he's healthy and if he's stronger, there is something there. We know there's potential there, but it is, it's untapped and it's not 100% clear. It's going to come to fruition, but if it does, it changes the outlook and trajectory of the team, but it's way too early and there's too much unknown and there's too much lack of production last year for me to say that's definitely going to happen. So we, I feel like we do need front court assistance based on, based on right now it being Oguama, Lockin, and then you've got Davenport at the four, Hensley at the four, and maybe Josh Reed. You know, like it's it's a pretty small team. I think we're, I think we might be over putting too much expectation on how what impact the two freshmen are going to come in and have. I, I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to see them come. You, Maybe, you know, maybe, obviously we're not the coaches. I'm not the coach. I don't know, but I do, I do, I do think their roles are going to be smaller than, than, than what might be being anticipated. I think most of those extra roles are going to come from the guys that we put these three guys that we pick on the portal. And I can't really, I can't agree or disagree until I see what those portal guys are, right. but I'll yeah. say this, I'll say this all year. I see it on Twitter. I see it when I talk to, to my dad, to my neighbor, like anyone I talk to Bearcats basketball, we know that we don't have overwhelming talent on this roster. And you're telling me we're bringing in two top 150 type guys, one of which is, you know, fringe four star. These are very good players, very highly touted players with skill, with size. And you're telling me that it's unfair to expect them to come in and impact this team immediately. I'm expecting. I don't want to say. I'm not, I guess I, I don't want to say it's unfair. I just like. There's nothing from this year. That makes me go. Wes Miller is all about trusting the super young player. So maybe right. maybe that's maybe that's my expectation that I'm I just. I'm basically uh, maybe I'm just trying to give myself a warm cuddly blanket in case it's it's Wes Miller, you know, not wanting to give give a younger player, you know, significant playing time. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily that they don't have the skill to do it. I don't think he can afford to do it, to be honest with you. I think that when you look at what I hope you're right. I hope you I hope I, you're right. I'm not saying you can't you can't give a carte blanche. I'm gonna play you to you know, no matter what you do, they're gonna have to execute defensively and hustle and, and do the small things that coaches require. They have to be reliable. But if those things are done, like you, these guys deserve the benefit of the doubt based on the upside they have. And I'm not saying they're going to come in and magically make us a tournament team. I'm saying that let's, I'm hoping that they're good enough and physically ready enough and mentally ready enough to come in and play, play minutes, meaningful minutes to learn how to win games and, and compete at this level. Because I do, I do believe in the talent of those two guys in particular. So I'm not saying I have expectations that they're going to be some sort of miracle worker and take us to the promised land. I'm saying that based on what's currently on this roster, these guys can come in and immediately earn a role and they should be able to do it. Good. (laughs) 
Good to be back, buddy. Let's leave it there. And we will reconvene on Sunday. I think I'm going to put pressure on you to, to make a, make a Sunday pod happen. It's going to be your time to pick. And, uh, and if you tell me, no, I'm going to edit this part out and then we'll, we'll figure out like a different a, time. A nooner podcast. And we need to get some, we need to get some football talking here. We got, we got Ben Bryant. We, we got Evan Prater. Like, yep. We're, we're coming with the football next episode. And we're we got draft on. talk. We got draft talk. I don't know if you I know believe what? this, but I believe it when we see it, Sauce Gardner just got a number two uh, draft spot on the latest mock drafts from, we, from ESPN. So we've got probably a couple. We've got like two projected first round picks, right? Sauce is a lock. Ritter is right in the mix. And then second and third round are going to be, we're going to have, we're going to have our fingerprints all over the draft. We could do something creative with this be it a live stream if they're on late at night crack a couple you know crack the best cow bottle open and open have some beverages do a little live stream people come and go get sam involved i think we we got some options there let's do something i don't see why not might be able to swing that we'll chat about it some more but good to be back on the podcast sorry everybody for making you wait so long but we're back cheers buddy yeah you can blame colette